another taboo has fallen. The taboo that the European Union was not uh, providing arms in a war. Yes, we are doing. Stated earlier this week, the EU's High Representative Joseph Borrell. Welcome to Directives Beyond the Byline. I am Evi Kiori, and this week our podcast is focusing on the latest EU response to Russia's war in Ukraine, on the geopolitical taboos of the EU activating the European Peace Facility Program by buying and sending weapons to Ukraine, and of course on the fast-track EU membership application by Ukraine and the U-turn in Germany's foreign policy. We are also focusing on the bloc's actions to become independent from Russia when it comes to energy supply, what are the plans on the table and how feasible are they. Today I'm joined by Euractiv's Alexandra Brzozowski, who joins me this week from the Polish-Ukrainian border. Alex, welcome to the podcast again. Thanks, Avi, for having me. Now, before we talk about the latest EU response to Russia's war in Ukraine, how is the situation where you currently are and uh, what do you hear from the refugees arriving in the Polish territory? We've spent the past few days along the Polish-Ukrainian border. We've been yesterday in Medica, the biggest border crossing um, of the eight that uh, currently are open and where refugees are arriving from, from Ukraine. It can be crossed by car or by foot, and we've uh, been seeing a constant flow of buses with registered people coming uh, from across the border, mostly women and children. Um, the bottom line is that, of course, you see a lot of scared people, but However, most of them look relieved to have made it over the border and away from the bombings. We've also seen supplies being sent the other way, so towards Ukraine, though we are told that the facilitation on the other side is is very difficult, obviously, because of the security situation. Um, At the same time, we've also seen a few young people, mostly men, crossing into Ukraine. Volunteers and, and taxi drivers confirmed to us that quite a few of them have been coming in the past days to go and, and fight. Um, now, currently, we're in Przemysl, the city where Ukrainian refugees arrived by train. It's a bit further away from the border, but it's it's the first stop that the, that the train has um, after it crosses it. So there is no schedule for the trains, we were told, partly because um, obviously they are irregular due to the security situation. But on the other side, um, we also heard that they are not necessarily communicated from the Ukrainian side as there is fear that they could be targeted in case um, the bombing is moved closer to the western part of Ukraine. Um, On the spot here, there's a lot of humanitarian organizations present, very international as well, and we have um, tons of volunteers. And I was told yesterday, for example, that actually there's so many willing people to help that, um, yeah, there's too many of them. So um, I think they're still struggling to, to properly organize the help. Uh, food is distributed, necessities, supplies, and so on. When when people arrive by train, um, they're greeted by the volunteers. And I think it's quite important to say that uh, we see a lot of Polish so- solidarity. And um, I also think that, you know, with, with time in the next few weeks, I think it will be a bit more organized than it is currently. But in general, there, there's a lot of support on this side. Um, however, we're told by local authorities and, and, and volunteers that Um, There's a lot of disinformation and fake news um, that have increased on the social media side and also after reports um, that um, some refugees have been beaten up by a far-right-wing group um, a few days ago. 
Um, and this fake news and, and, and disinformation suggests that the refugees are committing crimes. Um, I mean, some contacts that we spoke to and, and also the local police um, have suggested that they believe that, you know, the Russians are trying to turn the local police population against um, the Ukrainian refugees. Although, again, as I said, in reality, polls have showed very significant solidarity here. Now, shifting our focus to Brussels, where EU Home Affairs ministers are currently looking for answers to this new humanitarian crisis. Beyond this, when we look at the overall picture, uh, the EU's response to Russia had a remarkable run in the past week. How do you see this so far? Uh, Do we see a paradigm shift? I think we really do, Abby, because Russia's invasion of Ukraine has forced the EU to finally match those colorful promises um, on foreign policy ambitions with actual actions, um, which is something that seemed probably impossible um, roughly a week ago. Um, Looking at the overall foreign policy context, I also believe we're looking at an interesting shift, especially when it comes to the rhetoric we see. Uh, We all remember those very deeply, strongly, gravely concerned statements by the Commission and its representatives and especially spokespeople. But what we've seen in the past weeks is a significant change of language. At the same time, the unprecedented strength um, and also speed at which the EU um, and its member states have trashed out one sanction package after the other, um, I think came as a big surprise to many. Uh, since so far, we, when we think of the crisis in the past few years, we've been seeing rather slow and opaque responses. Of course, um, I think it remains to be seen how effective those sanctions will be in the end, whether they are loopholes or, or something that has not been entirely coordinated with um, international partners. But I think it is clear that this time things are different because the political will has has finally been there to to move quickly um, and forcefully. But indeed, I think for the actual first time, we've seen probably a bit more of that geopolitical Europe um, the Commission has been talking about for, for two years now. And speaking about geopolitical taboos uh, mentioned by the EU's High Representative Joseph Borrell, the EU also decided to trigger the European Peace Facility for buying and sending weapons to Ukraine. For the first time ever, the European Union will finance the purchase and delivery of weapons and other equipment to a country that is under attack. This is a watershed moment. Now, this is a big deal for the bloc, according to the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. But it is also controversial. Why is this controversial, Alex? Uh, What implication will this have? Earlier this week, the EU agreed to unblock, I think, some 500 million uh, euros for member states to buy arms for Ukraine's armed forces. That's quite unprecedented. Um, EU's chief diplomat Borrell has spoken about lethal arms and non-lethal supplies like fuel and protective equipment. I think we will need to see what specifically um, this proposal will come up with and and what specifically will be funded and sent. But uh, the European Peace Facility would be used to coordinate shipments and and provide other logistics. In general, uh, and that's why it was so controversial to, to come up with that idea, EU treaties prohibit the EU from using its regular uh, budget to fund operations with military or defense implications. And that's why this is an off-budget instrument um, that had opened the door kind of for the EU to deliver military aid to partner countries and also finance the deployment of its military missions abroad before it was used, for example, in Africa. And last year, I think before everything went downhill, um, the EU also 
decided to start providing security aid to Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova precisely under this instrument. And while mentioning these three, it is also the first time uh, we see the EU debating the membership of uh, further countries in a rather unconventional way. What does this mean procedure-wise and what are the chances also for other countries in the waiting room? So earlier this week, Ukraine's President Zelensky um, submitted an official request to the EU to allow his country to gain immediate membership under a special fast-track procedure. So did actually Georgia on Wednesday and most likely Moldova might follow. So the three um, of them are the so-called associated trio of the Eastern Partnership um, that are further in their alignment with EU standards than the others that, that are in that format. So to be honest, for that to say accession talks, as we know, are a long, long procedure that involves detailed technical preparations and usually takes years. So um, you need to check possible vetoes at every step of the way. In normal circumstances, um, any European country applying for EU membership must meet the Copenhagen criteria. I mean, it's about that the candidate country um, has to achieve stability of institutions, um, rule of law, human rights, um, respect and protection for minorities. Um, also the existence of a functioning market economy and a lot of reforms that come with it. So, so those are the criteria. And the applicant usually then signs an association agreement with the US, the first step, which Ukraine has already completed. Um, and once the f- country has formally applied for membership, uh, the European Council can ask the Commission to prepare an opinion um, as to the country's readiness to open those negotiations. The EU has said this week that it would seriously look into Ukraine's application, um, recognizing the, the most political weights and also quite dramatic circumstances, when we're honest. How bad the situation will get in Ukraine will probably play a significant role in in this decision uh, if it's taken forward. And then, obviously, we would need to see how this influences um, uh, the deal with Georgia and, and potentially Moldova um, afterwards. But as a next step, I mean, the Commission, if, if this, is, this is going forward, the Commission would issue a recommendation as to whether the country should start accession talks. And um, the Council usually accepts that recommendation, leading the country to become an official EU candidate. In the case of Ukraine, it is not entirely impossible um, that the country receives uh, candidate status quickly, um, especially to uh, send a political message. But we need to um, also look at the hesitation from member states. I think it will be quite tricky given the long-standing enlargement fatigue that has been there uh, for the past few years. Of course, a large coalition of Eastern European countries has this week voiced its support, but um, it will be up to Germany and especially France, the persistent objector when it comes to enlargement, um, that will have to be convinced. And the danger is also if, if Ukraine would be fast-tracked to EU candidate status, candidate status doesn't mean membership, it would probably be perceived as unfair um, by the countries in the Western Balkans, which have been in the waiting room for so long. I mean, we're thinking about um, North Macedonia, um, who changed his name, its name and, and Albania. An ideal scenario, um, if, you know, if, if the political momentum is really there, would be that EU leaders um, at their summit next, informal summit next week in Paris might discuss the application, but we will have to see probably also what happens until then um, in Ukraine. 
And while referring to Germany and the unity EU countries are showing when it comes to facing the Kremlin, Germany was uh, one of the countries uh, who was pro-peace via diplomatic means. Now, that has changed. And to hear more on the U-turn in Germany's foreign policy, I am joined by Iraqtiv's Oliver Noyan. Welcome back, Oliver. Hi, Evie. As usual, thanks for having me. What made uh, Germany reconsider and what is the new foreign policy the country is following? Germany's foreign policy was always driven by what they call a peace policy. So um, um, they refrained from sending any weapons to crisis areas. Um, they wanted to solve everything with, with um, um, diplomacy. And we've seen that um, in the run-up of the, of, of the war in Ukraine, actually, where they were one of the only countries who refused to deliver weapons um, to assist Ukraine. And where they really wanted to, to um, make a difference by... Um, with, by means of diplomacy. So both Foreign Minister Baerbock and um, Chancellor Habeck actually went to, to Moscow to negotiate with, with Putin and Lavrov. Um, so and this is really where the story starts because um, now they're saying they lied to us. So this is like really the, the, the big turning point because they said Russia and Putin and Lavrov, they all lied to us. They prepared this for weeks and um, yet they invited us and all our efforts were in vain. And this is like really a huge turning point in, in foreign policy. So what is happening right now is um, Germany did a complete U-turn when it comes to, to foreign policy. So Baerbock, for instance, a foreign minister said that she wants to put um, German foreign policy in a completely new footing. Um, so this doesn't mean that um, necessarily that they won't opt for a diplomatic approach, but only where possible. And in this situation, they're really looking for close alignment with the international community. And we've already seen that um, in the last couple of days, where they really pushed for, for um, close collaboration in the United Nations and, and with the resolution that was um, passed yesterday by a majority of countries. So this is where they are still um, on really heavy on diplomacy. But when it comes to Russia um, and what is, what is called nowadays the, the aggressor in, in the German discourse, um, they really want to get tough. And this is especially highlighted when it comes to weapon exports first. They're now delivering weapons to, to Ukraine. We already, we've already went through the news, but also in defense spending. So Germany was always hesitant to live up to its 2% expenditure goal of GDP that is outlined or enshrined in, in the NATO treaty. They always, they always had like this approach of, oh, military isn't really that necessary anymore. We live in a world now with the end of history where we don't have to, to spend that much on military. Now this has completely changed. So they um, want to have, they are planning on a, defense funds that is worth 100 billion euros and will permanent and plan to permanently exceed the, the 2% of GDP when it comes to military expenditure. And what does this shift mean uh, on the one hand for the country's exterior politics and on the other hand uh, for its domestic politics? So of course um, there are huge repercussions both in foreign policy but also in domestic politics. So in domestic politics we see that basically the left wings of both the Green Party and the, the Social Democrats are basically silenced because um, those left, left wings within the parties, they really 
um, were heavily opposed to anything that would relate to, to increasing military spending or weapon deli weapons deliveries. We can also see that people are resigning who, for instance, the former head of the um, SPD Russia and um, Germany um, Council, he, re he resigned because he bravely miscalculated what Russia, Russia was up to. So here we can really see a major shift in um, domestic politics. And this is also reflected in the electorate. So a lot of people now are showing solidarity with, um, with Ukraine. And in the past, the electorate was really like, um, really peaceful. So Germany was always considered to be like the pacifist country, a pacifist country. And this is exactly the stance of the population. So now this is really shifting also, also when it comes to the electorate, where they are more supportive of um, showing a, a tough stance on Russia. When it comes to foreign policy, of course, I've already outlined that before. There, is, there are like those ma major shifts. We have the defense spending of, um, that will exceed 2% of GDP. And, um, and, of, and of course, this, this um, defense fund, funds package um, that they're currently working on. Other than that, we will really have to see um, what will happen in the future how much um, Germany will really change its stance on foreign policy. And um, now I think it's still too soon to really say if it's like a long-term shift that will um, underpin German foreign policy for decades to come, or if, it, if, if it's more something that's, that they're putting forward in this specific situation of the war in Ukraine to deter Russian aggression. Well, thank you, Alex and Oliver, for breaking down for us what is happening with Ukraine and the EU's reaction to the war. You're listening to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractivecom slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our digital brief podcast and agri-food brief podcast. Now, moving to Brussels, the EU energy ministers met on Monday to look for solutions over the energy situation in Europe and in Ukraine following the military aggression by Russia. To hear more on how is the EU planning to deal with the energy supply from Russia, I spoke with Euractiv's energy and environment reporter Kira Taylor. So, Kira, is the EU planning to be independent from Russia when it comes to gas supply? And if so, how is the Union planning to achieve this? That's the ultimate goal. So we saw a leak yesterday which was looking at how to make Europe independent from its main dependent, which is uh, Russian energy, and particularly gas. Europe imports uh, 90% of the gas it uses, and 40% of that comes from Russia. And with the Russian aggression in Ukraine and with um the high price of energy, there is a real need to get out of um, fossil gas and particularly Russian gas as, as quickly as possible. But the issue is, you know, that's 40% of Europe's supply. It can't just be turned off overnight. And while the European Union says that, you know, if Russia were to switch off the tap for gas, that Europe would be able to make it through this winter, there is still that reliance on Russia. So we can't just immediately say, right, we're going to stop everything. Europe first needs to look um, 
at other um, fossil gas plant countries. So this is liquefied natural gas that comes from the US and Qatar and other countries. And it also is looking at swapping contracts for LNG with other countries. It was looking at this with Japan in order to actually make up for that loss as it uh, weans itself off Russian gas. But this certainly won't happen overnight. When would it be possible to have an independent from Russian gas European Union? I think we will see that sooner than we would have in the situation um, last week. I think there is an increased pressure to move away from Russian gas, but really none of us have any idea. If Russia were to turn off the tap for Russian gas, but to, uh, possibly we might move away quicker because there would be a sudden need to. But really it's something that the EU has been working on slowly, but again, won't happen overnight. So as part of this leaked communication that we saw, they are looking at building up alternative gases, so like biogas and um, hydrogen. And we actually saw some um, some amounts that they were looking to get by 2030. So for biogas, that was 35 BCM. Uh, they wanted to import 10 million tons of renewable hydrogen by 2030. So um, as far as I know, those are the first times we've really seen that type of number, particularly for biogas and um, hydrogen. We've known that they want to be looking at imports for a while. So there are these pushes to move away. You know, we, we've got those numbers by 2030, although they are subject to changing. But really, it's anyone's guess. And what's the situation in the energy sector after the sanctions against Russia? What's the Russian retaliation? So the situation in the energy sector, we've seen uh, price hikes since the war began. Um, there were actually increased imports, I think, probably because of concerns that at some point Russia would no longer be a source of this energy. Um, really, I think everyone is in shock. I mean, you saw it in Germany where they had always kind of said that Russia was a reliable supplier and now we're suddenly having to do this massive U-turn. Um, you had issues with Nord Stream 2, which they then um, tried to uh, stop the certification of and Nord Stream 2 now looks at actually going bankrupt because of some issues with it. But there are still some some help, I would say, for the energy sector. You know, it hasn't been as cut off as other areas. The swift sanctions haven't yet hit the energy sector because um, there are still payments able to be made for the energy. So I think it's more a case of concern about what happens in the near future. And of course, price rises at a time when there were already historically high prices. Now the prices in energy keep going up, and that is something that concerns European countries. Do we have an immediate plan to halt the rise in prices? I'm tempted to say no, um, because there are some measures which particularly EU countries can put in place. They were laid out in what the European Commission called a toolbox in October. Um, this leaked energy communication which was supposed to be put out uh, on Wednesday and is now delayed probably till next week, was supposed to be the follow-up to that. But now 
we're kind of seeing it moving in a different direction. And although it is talking about increasing renewables, which would probably lower the price of energy in the EU, um, none of these things are going to come in quickly. And at the end of the day, they're not going to change the fact that the prices are are very high. Um, in the long term, you know, Europe can move away from imported energy, particularly from Russia. It can move towards more renewables, which are normally cheaper. Um, and we will, at some point, if it's agreed by the European Parliament and the EU countries, have what's called the Social Climate Fund, which would uh, give direct payments to um impacted households but that's linked into a very controversial extension of the uh, eu carbon price to road transport and buildings so particularly in the light of what's going on that could be delayed or we could see changes to that so i think at the moment you know it's really down to eu countries to decide whether they are going to send direct payments whether they're going to do some kind of um thing with tax in order to help Households, but it's really not a good situation for the EU to be in. And I think um, the European Commission and EU leaders are highly, highly aware that this is an issue. And although we are coming out of the winter, it's not an issue that is going to go away anytime soon. And focusing a little bit more on Ukraine. EU energy ministers indicated on Monday that there was political support for uh, integrating Ukraine into Europe's electricity grid. How would this help Ukraine and how could this be done? Yeah, so this is actually something that Ukraine and Moldova, they they have a linked electricity grid. They've been working on since 2017 with the EU um, to link their electricity grid into um, Europe's continental grid. Now, this has suddenly become much more urgent in the light of the war that Russia is waging there, because while Ukraine's electricity grid is currently stable, there are concerns that um, if one of their nuclear power plants went offline, if a Russian rocket damaged some of the vital infrastructure, we've been told, or as of Saturday, things changed quite quickly, but we were told that Russia was not targeting the infrastructure, but also that it could be damaged kind of if a rocket went astray. Um, So if one of these things happened, we could risk a blackout in Ukraine um, and damage to the electricity grid, which would be quite difficult to fix in a war situation. So linking to Europe's electricity grid would provide more stability and more flexibility for Ukraine and also just be that backup. So EU energy ministers had a meeting on Monday and according to the energy commissioner, Kadri Simpson, they were there was widespread support for this. The issue is it's not really a political decision. It's more a technical decision. So um, ENSO-E, which is the kind of European group of transmission system operators, they're the people who manage the grid. Um, They are currently looking at what are the risks of bringing Ukraine in. um, And there are hopes this could be done in the next few weeks. But so much could change in that time. Well, thank you, Kira. And our time is up for this week. I am Evie Kiori, and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit youractive.com for the latest news. And don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening.